we have a sign that's out front of our church. It's on the, the front wall on the left side as you, as you come in the front doors. Now, a funny thing about that sign is that I, I hardly notice it anymore. It's like it wasn't even there in my mind, but, but it makes a pronouncement that is at the, the core of our collective identity in this place. I imagine that if you have been here a while, uh, then you might not notice the sign either. But if you're new, or if you're visiting, then I hope you saw it, and, and I hope it spoke to you. But in any case, it says, God loves all. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. At least I, I think that's what it says. Uh, <laughs> I keep forgetting to look at it, like I told you. Is that right, though? Is that, is that right? Yeah, maybe. See, yeah, okay, good. Okay, one person at least looked at it. That's good. Thank you. But this sentiment that God loves all, that God loves everyone, it sits at the center of our common life in this community. And we've, we've taken uh, signs that, that say this out into the world, too. We've, we've taken it to, to the Pride Parade and March, uh, and, we, and we teach this message in, in the pulpit often, and in our classes, um, and we tell people to, who are seeking a deeper relationship with God to, to believe in this and to trust in this good news. And we try to embody this, this love of God for all people in our ministries, and in our worship life. And we do so, we do so because we think that it is true and that it is central to the gospel message that we are called to proclaim. God loves all. As a slogan, it conveys an important and critical message. It tells an important truth. But like any slogan by itself, it's not enough. It does, it does some seriously heavy lifting, but, but taken by itself, it creates also a ton of questions. For instance, who or what is God? We often take the meaning of the word God for granted, but I've often found that when two people start talking about God, they don't necessarily mean the same thing when they say the same word. God. And so, too, with love. Love is a, a, an amorphous concept in our culture, lacking a single definition. It, it does a lot of work, that word love. And even the word all can bring with it all sorts of baggage, can't it? So, our little sign, for all of its truth, for all of the ways it speaks an important word to the world. It needs to be fleshed out. It needs content. It captures something critical, but, but we need more if we're really going to be able to understand what it means. Now, of course, Christianity has, has proclaimed that the best way of understanding God's love is to look at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is this enfleshment, the incarnation of what it means to say that God loves all. 
And the New Testament bears witness to the, to the person of Jesus Christ, and, and therefore Jesus becomes the lens by which we are intended to read the whole of Scripture, both the Old and the New Testaments. Jesus, as the enfleshed Word of God, is the lens by which we can understand our own lives in relation to God. Jesus is God's embodied message of love to all of humanity and to all of creation. This is a fundamental Christian witness. And it's with that in mind that we should, we should read today's gospel lesson, which I admit is difficult. And yet, like, like any person, Jesus is also a mystery whose life needs examination and interpretation. And that brings us to Paul. Now, many of you know I don't preach on what Paul has to say very often. And it's not because I don't like Paul. I admit he isn't perfect by any stretch, and he's been used throughout the ages to, uh, to do all sorts of horrible things and to justify all sorts of bad behavior uh, by Christians. But I, I do deeply appreciate him for the, for the love that he has for God and for the depth of his insight into the gospel. But I don't preach on him much, not because I don't like him, like I said, but because he can be just so complicated and so prone to misinterpretation. So, for instance, take, take the juxtaposition that we heard in today's lesson, that was also in last week's lesson, between flesh and spirit. Now, if we listen to Paul, then we're told that, that flesh is bad and that spirit is good. And since we're, uh, as modern listeners, associate flesh with bodies and spirits as bodiless, then we assume that he meant that the body itself is bad and that the disembodied mind or spirit is good. But that's not what Paul is doing, at least not exactly. Flesh, for Paul, doesn't mean body. There are two different words in Greek, sarx and soma. Rather, for Paul, flesh means that which is human directed away from God. It is a power in human life that resists the Spirit of God. So yes, flesh does have to do with our physical nature, and so is about lust or gluttony or all the things that we get worried about. But it's not just about our bodies. The concept of flesh in Paul is also about our highest ideals, our big concepts, if those ideals are directed away from God. Far from being anti-body, by the ancient world's standards, Paul is actually pretty body positive, though it's not always easy to see that. But all of this is to say that Paul is complicated which again is why I don't preach on him much. But today, I want to point to just one thing. And I want to point to it because it actually fleshes out our sign out front and our identity as a community. Paul says to 
the early church in Rome and says to us. Paul says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the, the, that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. This spirit of adoption, this being made a child of God, this very spirit bearing witness with our spirit, this being made an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ, this is who God reveals God's self to be for us. And this is what it means for God to love all. The love that God has for us is not merely an external favor or appreciation from a distance. God does not love us from afar. No. No, God's love draws us in. We are not held at a distance. Rather, we are drawn into an embrace. We are drawn in so that we might participate in the very life of God, which is love. As we are baptized, we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. God's very Spirit lives in our innermost being. As we are baptized, we are made children of God. Therefore, we are given the same status, the same privilege, the same favor, the same place as Christ himself. For indeed, our baptisms make us one with Christ. We are made one in Christ, together as a community. And therefore, God's love unites us one to another and all of us to Christ. And therefore, we are all one in God. And yet the, the reality that is ushered in through baptism is, is not just for us alone, but is indeed intended for the whole of creation. For Paul later goes on to tell us that creation itself will be set free from the bondage of decay. All of creation is the object of God's love. Not just all people, but all creation God truly loves all. And so today, we come here to, to celebrate and to give thanks. We come here to, to praise God for the gift and wonder of creation. We come here to, to praise God for the gift of the Holy Spirit living in our lives. We come here to praise God, for God has assumed our nature in the life of Christ. We come here to give thanks to God for the welcoming of Brooklyn and Ryan into God's family through baptism, which we are about to celebrate. 
We come here to give thanks to God and to come to Christ's table to feast at the banquet of God's love given for us. We come here to praise God, for God truly loves all. Amen.